You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 82 is Byron Isaacs, who is a bass player in great demand. The project that established his name was a New York gospel act called Olabel that started in 2004 and released three studio albums and a live album. Now, everyone in that band sings, including Amy Helm, daughter of the legendary Levon Helm of the band. And you are right now listening to... A song called Heaven's Pearls that Byron wrote for Olabel and is being covered here by Levon with Byron playing bass for Levon's 2009 album Electric Dirt. We're going to be focusing on Byron's debut 2018 solo album called Disappearing Man. The songs we'll discuss are Losing You and Gypsy Wind. Then we'll look back to the Olabel tune Gone Today from their 2007 album Riverside Battle Songs. And finally, we'll listen to Horizontal Man by a band called Lost Leaders that Byron co-fronts with Peter Cole. That song is from their 2014 self-titled album. Now, Byron has been a sideman to lots of people. He's been touring with the Lumineers lately. You can see this full list at byronisaacs.com. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please demonstrate it by going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and signing up for a small contribution. I'll do my intro over a bit of Heaven's Pearls by Levon Helm from Electric Dirt 2009. One of the songs that you actually wrote for a Levon album, you wrote one for each of his two albums. Uh, Heaven's Pearls was on the second Olabel album, which came out a few years before Electric Dirt. So he was covering that as an Olabel song. Gotcha. So Calvary, though, that's the first time it had appeared on an album was on Levon's Dirt Farmer album. So you've got a lot of background playing bass for just scores of folks before you're getting around to what starting the duo band we're going to hear something at the end from lost leaders and then just finally now getting around to your first solo album disappearing man 2018 which is what we're going to be focusing mainly on today do you want to talk about finally emerging to get to that point you know for so long i was just i would prioritize anybody's stuff above my own you know (laughs) it's like part of that's being married having kids responsibilities of adulthood that came along. And so I had recorded some of this, what became Disappearing Man some years back and just let it sit aside. And it took me a while to get over myself a bit. I was hiding myself away from it, I think, because it was just too daunting. And I had a pretty banging career as a sideman going, which was you know exciting and doing all kinds of great music. And I always had that voice. Artists always have that, why do you think the world needs another singer songwriter record, you know, like just work on all the, the great music that you're lucky enough to be playing as a side man and like save the world, your silly little brainchild. But I finally got over that. I had some time off after this last Lumineers tour and I decided, what the heck, time is at the essence. Let's go ahead and do this, see what happens. Yeah. So give us the sort of thematic background of disappearing man and losing you in particular. A few years back, a couple of friends, married friends, I was friends with both of them. And they were going through a breakup. And what was strange was neither of them were talking about it, really. But I kept hearing about it from other people. And the whole thing just seemed so odd and kind of chilling the way that it went down. And, and, you know, the good news is they've remained friends and all is good now. But the breakup I found to be really strange and compelling. And so that's where Losing You came out of.
it's always challenging when you've got basically a blues song to make that interesting enough. But it seems like you have a whole fleet of people here. I see you have arranger John. Oh, Lissauer. Well, on that song, you mean the song Losing You specifically? Yes. Okay, well, that one was actually just the three of us in the studio. That was Hector Castillo, who was recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess four of us, actually, because there was a percussionist, Joe Bonadio, and our other producer, Brian Coleman, and me. And Hector and I basically played all the instruments besides the percussion, and we knocked that out in two days. So of the songs on the record, that has by far the fewest people on it. It's a very nuanced arrangement, I think if you're going to do something that has a blues progression, it better be freaking interesting. I'm surprised to hear that that wasn't Glenn from Olabel playing on that because I'm hearing a lot of the same sort of psychedelic keyboard stuff that I hear on the later Olabel stuff that seemed to distinguish that from just a traditional gospel group by that point. You know, you spend any time at all with Glenn Patra and some of that's going to rub off on you. He's so brilliant and his whole approach to sound is just glorious. I mean... Whether Glenn could be there or not, I always want to have his aesthetic in there. I think that's rubbed off on me. Tell me a little bit more how you and Hector, so Hector, I see he had done stuff for David Bowie from Bjork, uh, other folks. How the two of you are working together? How are the arrangement decisions made? I mean, for instance, toward the end has that crazy 16th note synth thing that's fluttering there. You know, how would something like that come up? All that synth stuff was usually him dialing up sounds and me actually on the synth. Even throughout the rest of the record where Glenn is there, there are still overdubs that are done that way as well with me on the synth and Hector doing the sounds. And sometimes we both have hands on the keyboard at the same time. Or we play a a Voyager, like a Moog Voyager, and he'd be on all the dials and like changing all the parameters and stuff as it went. It was very fun working with Hector. He's truly collaborative. I don't know, really exciting. And it really is like two guys playing one guitar. (laughs) And it works. He's good at doing the mind meld. I could definitely hear that just with this synth wash that's right there from the beginning, but it kind of changes tone slightly and in volume in some places. And it's kind of playing slightly different roles as the song goes on. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to be emphasizing just the bells and whistles here. I mean, (laughs) you had the basic song first, I assume. Yeah, I had the whole song and we had even recorded a different version of it about a year before this version, which miraculously, I mean, at first it seemed like a tragedy, but it was lost. Both the drives, the main drive and the backup drive failed beyond repair. It was like one of those bizarre, like, oh my gosh, we actually lost that track. And so we were at first kind of daunted. We were like, what are we going to do? Do we just leave it off the record? And then we just decided, nope, it's going to go on the record. We're just going to re-record it like now. And the song completely changed. Like what came out of us the second time was something that was actually meaner and leaner and it happened much more quickly. And also the arrangement changed slightly and it required there to be two more lines of lyrics at the very end. And we discovered this as I got up to sing the lead vocal. It was like, oh, oh, there's another hole there. We need some more lyrics. And Brian Coleman was sitting there and dashed off two lines and handed them to me. And I just sang them right then and there. And that's those last two lines of verse at the end. Brian just right off the top of his head in the moment. So that became a co-write. The original version was not a co-write. And it just all seemed to happen so serendipitously all of a sudden, you know, it was fun and exciting and collaborative. I wonder about that sometimes with, there have been in situations where if I'm playing somebody else's song and I contribute a line to it, then I'm just like, take the line. You know, I'm not going to get a co-write credit for contributing for a line to it. It just depends on the environment that you're in. There are so many different ways to approach that kind of division of songwriting. In Nashville, for instance, they say, if you get together with a group of people to write a song and a song happens, Everyone who is in the room is an equal writer. Even if that person was just sitting there like drumming their fingers or like cocking their head or like it didn't even say a word, if they were there, they contributed. That's their ethos, which actually helps with the spirit of songwriting because then people aren't like trying to force their words in just so that they make sure that they can say, well, 63% of these lyrics are mine. You know, there's none of that fighting. But In other places, they have a completely different approach to it. And some people will say, well, I think you deserve 25% of that song because of dot, 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 dot. So I kind of prefer the the Nashville approach. If you contributed anything, you're a writer to the actual writing process, not necessarily to production maybe, but to the writing process, if you contributed at all or showed up with a spirit to contribute, you're a writer. 
this kind of explains an experience I had many years ago where I got together with a guy who I think was sending stuff regularly to Nashville and we tried to write a song together. Didn't really happen, but I took the things that I had done from that session, turned them into my own song. There was not a note that he had contributed, but I remained paranoid about it for years that he was going to, because kind of things that he had said when we were starting the session, it hasn't come back on me in 15 years. So I, <laughs> I don't think it will. I've had that uncomfortable feeling many times. And like now I just go ahead and pick up the phone. I just lay it out and ask for their blessing. It's better to just give up part of a song than it is to have that nattering feeling in the back of your head like, oh man, was that cool what I did? You know, I don't know. I don't want to walk around with any of those thoughts anymore. (laughs) So how does that extend to people just playing interesting stuff on the the recording? I mean, because if I write a bunch of songs, just me and my guitar, and I go in and a band contributes. I know like the police made a deal of where in addition to the songwriting credit, we're going to take half of that and divide it into three ways. And that's going to be arrangement credit. And sort of that was baked into the publishing right up front. That's a good way to keep a band together. I mean, I know Tom Waits actually also set aside a portion of his publishing for his band. And actually Olabel took that a step further. And every original song that we did, we actually listed, no matter who brought in the song, you'll see all of our names on the copyright. When I would bring in a song, like if you look up the credits for Heaven's Pearls, for instance, on Levon's record, it's got every member of Olabel in there, even though I brought that song in. But we recorded that song together. That song forever is community property. You know, that's a healthy approach for a band. I think it's good for us not to worry too much about credit, you know? I think the more hung up we get on trying to protect our own interests, actually, the more alienating that is for us from the whole world. And I don't know, it's, it's no way to live, I don't think. I do remember a bad outcome from the arrangement that you're describing, which was Badfinger. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but the two main singers in that killed themselves over time. Years later, Living Without You, one of their bigger songs, got a giant award. And because they had had that kind of arrangement of the publishing going, splitting, so it was like, you know, the remaining guitarist and the drummer accepting the award, which kind of pissed off the surviving children of the actual songwriters of the thing. And so interesting that bad blood can come out of that, but I still feel like, yes, to keep a band together, to avoid rubbing people the wrong way, why not? There's no getting around that the business side of music goes a long way to killing the music and all the good intentions. It's hard to keep it pure. I mean, all you can do is just try to keep bending it back toward humanity Mm -hmm. as much as possible. And yeah, I mean, the business injects brutality in That's just going to happen. It's sad, but we just have to keep fighting against it and just trying to be as human as possible. Yeah, and I don't know the fact if there are very small potatoes in what you're dealing with, if that makes it easier to... Right now, if I play a show with five people, we just split it five ways. Even if I'm selling CDs of the show that I paid for, because the money is so low, it just doesn't matter at all. But on the other hand, with the co-writing thing, I've gone through so many bands and different sidemen that I, you know, there are a lot of people that deserve a co-write because like that key bass riff that defines that song was written by somebody else. But I just don't want to keep track of all these people <laughs> and the money is low enough that they're not going to care again. So. Right, right. When it comes down to paperwork, paperwork is a drag. <laughs> the thing is, I've been told many times, especially when you're like, putting together a band agreement, for instance, it's best to do that before there's any real money in the picture because everybody's going to be at their least greedy. It's only a theoretical pie to split up. If you start trying to do a band arrangement, like once you already have like a hit out and suddenly the money's flowing in and it just is de facto flowing into some bank accounts and not others, it becomes really difficult to actually change that and make you know, the kind of arrangement that you might have made in more equal footing times. Well, let's get back to the song and then get to the second song. So I'm glad I can talk to you about the arrangement here. I was worried that this was, yeah, I wrote the song and I went in, the producer and the arranger, they whipped it up because the arrangement is just so key on this whole album. It's just really immaculate. That was so fun to do because, I mean, it really, we did that in two days. It was just 
pretty much an idea would happen. A mic would get thrown on a guitar amp and then suddenly it's, you know, those, those sounds and stuff came together. Like it was completely serendipitous and it really happened as fast as I've ever seen anything come together. Yeah. So what about these outer space percussion things that you, you know, come in first just to kind of as a fill to get into the next section? This what right. strangely affected cowbell or something. And then, you know, you have the entire verse three, like it becomes the main thing. Is it the same sound, but with flange and stuff on it later in the song? There's some version, much softer version of the same basic percussion riff. So Joe Bonadio brought in a whole pile of things. And some of them were the kind of percussion stuff you'd expect to see. And some of it was stuff that I'd never seen. Some were kitchen utensils. He brought in a, it wasn't a hubcap, but it was some like this machinery thing that had this bell sound. I mean, he had all kinds of wackadoo stuff, these weird rusted springs like a fanciful array of percussion stuff. And we kind of told him generally what we thought the vibe was going to be and then just let him go. And then, you know, of course, Hector and I afterwards then did a little bit of, okay, we'll bring this thing in here and this thing in there. But largely, those are Joe's ideas and Joe's sounds. And he would even have an idea of like, all right, Hector, compress the heck out of this and put distortion on it. Some of even the treatments that you're hearing came from Joe. So Joe also was just flowing with inspiration and his groove was so good that, again, I mean, he was only there a couple of hours. And I think the percussion on that track is magic. And then this lead guitar that you have there, which is a completely a giant distorted thing that could very easily overwhelm the whole song, but you're just very subtle about it. You know, yeah. put on some answering riffs and making it add to the flutter of synth noise in the, in the courses of just this drone there. I don't even remember how the initial idea, I think I was like, yeah, we should have like a really crazy guitar sound. And Hector handed me this old, really beat up hollow body harmony guitar with like one like really cheesy looking ancient pickup in it. Of course, as soon as I played a note, like I mean, or as soon as he turned the amp on, it started feeding back wildly. So when I wasn't playing a note, it was feeding back like crazy. We just had it and it was a tiny little amp smaller than a champ. It was like some little old Gibson amp that, that Hector had in the studio. And so we just cranked it to death. And it was just sort of outlining those lines with it and the certain punctuations. Just I'm not even sure we discussed it. It just sort of seemed to be obvious. It was strange how this one just seemed to unfold itself to us. Like, you know, a lot of other arrangements we really had to sort of work for and search for. And this one just sort of fell in our lap. I mean, as soon as Hector cranked that guitar up, when we heard that sound, it was like, oh, yeah, we know what this needs to do. And it was almost like a saxophone line in the beginning, you know, like the first few things, it's almost like what you'd expect a horn to do, like a berry, you know, you know, and then, yeah, then the solo, I don't know, I think I took two takes of that solo. It was just like, less is more for that guitar solo. And just to clarify, are you saying that the little amp had distortion on it or you just no. cranked it through it enough and cranked it up that it create that's like natural distortion <laughs> no that's just the amp yeah the guitar <laughs> is going into the amp that's it there was no pedal it was just howling in pain that little amp <laughs> and i think he put some reverb on it after the fact but i mean it's almost completely unaffected and then how do you figure out how to end this i really like that the fast synth thing one of the knobs gets turned and it kind of slows down. And I even hear some chordal bass at the end. You switch up the bass a few times during the song. It's very, very percussive at the beginning. And then it moves a little more and then has this nice little subtle little riff that could be more in your face. You listen very deeply. Yeah, there was stuff on there that I actually just improvised as we were laying the track down. I kind of thought that I would just go back and actually replay the bass later. And then we were just like, oh, no, this all works. There's no reason to do that. There might have only been one take of bass. There's a lot of improvisation in the arrangement. You're right. I was playing some chordal stuff, but that wasn't really thought out. It was more just improvisatory. And yeah, the synth, the idea to slow that down, that's one thing that when Hector and I decided to do that, we had to do it maybe five or six times to get that delay just right. 
because it was an arpeggiator. And so, you know, it was speeding up and slowing down. I was just holding a chord. And then as the chord quality changed from major to minor, I was just changing a finger. But otherwise, the arpeggiator was doing the work. And then Hector was messing with the speed while I was doing that. And so getting, yeah, that final slowdown took a few minutes, but that was fun. I really liked how that turned out. I've been listening closely at the beginning, the bass, like I was almost thought that there was a little percussion, like some kind of kick drum buried in there. But no, it's just the way that you're hitting the bass when you're doing those initial riffs, which then when it kind of smooths out by the second verse, then you don't hear that anymore. So I guess you just have a very percussive style or do you know what you were doing there? That was a Hofner played with a pick. And I don't often play with a pick, but for that, it just felt right, especially because we knew we wanted it to be really sparse to begin with. <laughs> and we weren't going to have drum sets. So yeah, getting that attack on the bass helps. I'm trying to remember if I dropped the pick part of the way through the song. I feel like I played it with the pick all the way through, but I might have stopped muting it as much with my palm so that the notes were ringing more. And of course, as the track gets denser, you'll perceive less and less of the, the percussiveness of the transient on the picking. But I think I just played that Hofner with the pick all the way through, pretty sure. Of course, I'm just bringing up a tiny thing like that because you've got such a history of a bass behind you that, I mean, if you're coming into this, are you necessarily, did you have the upright there? Are you switching back and forth? Or are you, for this project, mostly keeping to a bass sound across the songs? Well, it's funny is on the original version that we did that got lost, I was playing upright and the song was down a whole step from where we did it, when we recut it. And so I actually detuned the low E string so that I could get a low E flat on the upright, which meant that on the E string, at least I was playing as if the song were in F sharp. But then if I went to the higher strings, of course, then it was all messed, you know, it was like kind of wackadoo. But when we recut it, we made a snap decision to recut it, and I didn't run home to get my upright. And that's kind of how that happened. Okay. If we had forethought any more, there probably would have been upright bass on it. Just because, especially if you're doing something without a drum set, per se, an upright can sort of, I mean, it is basically a big drum. That's the way I think of it when I play it. I think like I'm playing a drum, really. And so I think that's probably also why I grabbed for the pick and palm muted it, so I could get something that just had a little bit more of that thump, that aggressive transient thing that you kind of get with an upright. Let's move to Gypsy Wind, which is an even more simple basic song and a more elaborate arrangement. I'll direct folks to your online video where you tell the whole story about George Javori, who this is dedicated to. Tell as much or little of that as you want. George was just such a beautiful human being. And yeah, so I, I wrote this song for him. And if you're going to have people go listen to the story, then I won't get into it too much because it's... Um, that's a hard one to tell. But anyway, that song, it's super simple because I actually just wrote the entire song around just the open strings of a standard tune acoustic guitar. And I actually wrote it on my little daughter's, she was smaller at the time, little toy acoustic guitar. So this little tiny nylon string guitar. And I was playing around on it. The thing kind of almost sounded like a ukulele, but it actually was in regular standard tuning. And I was just plunking around on the open strings and just found a song in it. And it just had this sort of sentiment and it made me think of George, reminded me of stuff that George loved. So yeah, that's how Gypsy Wind happened. It's just the open strings of a guitar. <laughs> that image in particular, it made me go listen to the Dan Fogelberg 1979 tune of that name, but I'm guessing that is not the reference that you meant. It's certainly been used in other places. Oh man, to be honest, you found one of my many chasms of ignorance. I didn't know about that song. I should look it up. It's funny, you know, you can have a career in music for decades and know so much about so much music and just have actually large swaths of holes. And I'm surprised every day I hear about stuff that I've just never heard of. And it seems like I should have known that. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I was thinking Birds or Gene Clark, but that's Gypsy Rider was one of Gene Clark's last things. Where did this particular image, which did not come out of your story as you told it there? George came from Hungary and his father was full-blood Gypsy and his mother was Jewish. And both people at the time, it's changed a lot in Hungary since then, but both Gypsies and Jews were pretty widely despised in Hungary. And his family actually fled just a few years before the Iron Curtain came down. But they actually, they managed to escape Hungary in the, I think, the mid-80s. 
And they had a harrowing tale of their escape. But George came from a long line of gypsy musicians. And his father is a, you know, kind of a world renowned gypsy musician. And he had his grandfather also was like a violin prodigy. The stories were really cool. His long line of gypsy music heritage. And we used to joke about, he used to mainly, because I came to find out pretty quickly, like, I never knew things like, if you say that somebody gypped me, that's a slur. Yes. Because that, that's really, and it's referring to, you know, like a gypsy stealing from you. But he had a lot of funny anecdotes about those types of things, which I, I won't go into now. But anyway, there was something so incredible about his spirit and the way that he approached music. And it was like his own life breath came out through the drums. And there was a fluidity and he pervaded the song with his vibe. And so it always felt to me like playing with him was like riding wind. It's really what it felt like. And it's what he sounded like. And so that's where Gypsy Wind came from. And when he left us all, I just felt the palpable absence of that energy and that beautiful motion. And, you know, I found myself just longing for him to be reborn soon enough that I would get to make music with him again. Yeah. 
we had a little dance at the end of the last song, you know, a good 20 seconds or so where it's just noises here. It's almost 30 seconds of the song is basically done and you've just got all the sounds that have been built up over the songs just keep going. And I think it even moves into a different key right away or something. You know, it, uh, let's start with the end there. That's all of us just vibing out. And there's David Berger, the drummer, who's a friend of George's. Glenn Patches, also a very close friend of George's. I think everyone was thinking about George and just allowing some of the spontaneous, quirky, and George loved the beauty of dissonance. Loved it. And his love for that was infectious. And even though he didn't play a chordal or a melodic instrument, I mean, he was so melodic with his drums, but he seemed to bring that out of people as musicians. And even thinking about George, when you play, well, you'll find yourself stretching the harmonies and the time and creating just sort of a beautiful psychedelic soup. We just got into the George zone at the end there. Yeah, in fact, I'll replay the middle section here. You've got this wash of clarinets uh, answered by an electric piano and then eventually some kind of portamento synth or something there. So you're saying this is all just a live group playing. This is not so overdub intensive as the previous one. We overdubbed John Ellis. Okay. But we did leave that hole for him specifically to do his beautiful thing. And also John Lissauer contributed the sort of high strings that you hear. Mm. Oh, so that's actual strings. That's not just, I was thinking that was just a sample because it's just so, you know, it's so pristine. It's both. John Lissauer wrote the part and gave us a sample. And then Eleanor Whitmore actually played, I think we layered her into the sample. There's live violin with the sample. She just does it so well. It just blends perfectly in. But the band track was one take and actually the vocals are live too. So that is a live take with the guitar, bass, keyboards, and drums. So are you doing upright bass on this or are you doing guitar on this? The bass came later. Check this out. I was playing the the main guitar. Then Chris Masterson was playing electric guitar. Sure. And then we put on that track, Hector and I put on Voyager bass. So that's synth bass. And I have a lap steel that I made that has um, a bass neck. I made a double neck lap Ah. steel that I used to play a lot. Yeah. And so... That's a bass lap steel that joins the synth bass. So there are two basses on there that were both overdubs. See, this is what I'm talking about. When you have a creative person who dedicates himself to bass for long enough, then it's like Tony Levin who invented his like sticks that you attach to the fingers and is you know playing a tuba on one song and you start coming up with weird stuff like this. <laughs> yeah, Tony was definitely an inspiration. De- definitely an inspiration. Oh man, what a, what a brilliant, brilliant musician. So you're actually doing lap steel style playing, you know, with a slide, but you're doing bass notes so that you can capture some of that upright bass sliding up and down the neck. Right. You know, and that came out of when I was playing with Olabel, there were some songs that I would, I don't even know why. I mean, we would just do everything. We were very experimental as a band. So we would always try to figure out ways to turn everything on its ear, especially when you have such traditional material. It was really fun to just pervert that traditional material as much as possible. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. And so I started playing my bass with a brass slide. And it started to become such a part of what we did that I decided to make a dedicated instrument to that. So I didn't keep having to drop tune my bass in the middle of the set. I could just pick up something that was made for that. And so then I made this little lap steel with wood that I bought at Home Depot and a jigsaw that I bought. And like, it's the ugliest looking thing you ever saw, but it sounds great. I've used that thing a lot. It was fun. It's been a while. Actually, now that we're talking about it, I miss playing it. I want to pull it out again. (laughs) Well, and you've got the bass clarinet playing some of that, at least layering on top of the bass in some places in here, right? After you've established the clarinets in general in that break. And it's got that Beach Boys kind of, are you playing a dobro along with the bass there or something? There's just kind of a cluster of things. Like even the electric guitar doesn't really pop out that much unless he's doing an actual you know riff to answer your vocal there. I 
I think what can sometimes sound like the dobro is the guitar that I was playing. For that, I was playing this 1920s, I think, National Steel guitar. So it was a resonator guitar. It's not played with a slide, obviously. It's got a regular Spanish neck on it. It's not a Hawaiian style. It's got this incredible, unusual tone to it. And so some of the notes, because of the way that that aluminum biscuit plate works, can kind of pop out a little bit like a banjo if you start to play the thing hard. You might be hearing some of that coming through, but no, it's, it's just the same guitar that I'm tracking with from the start. You're not doubling yourself at the start, right? That's all just post effects that I hear. The guitar is mostly in the left ear, but then in the right ear, you've got this image of it, which could be pure reverb or it could be a second instrument. I wasn't really sure. Yeah, it's just the one. And yeah, some of what you're hearing is through the vocal mic because I was playing and singing at the same time. And so it's obviously like getting into the vocal effects too. That helped with that. There was, I wouldn't say a happy accident because like we went into it knowing that it was going to bleed, but it's one of those constraints that you have when we record that way that can be lucky if you know how to work with it. I'm just approaching recording with an acoustic group I'm playing with currently and I'm kind of been debating of, should I lead the band while not singing so I can overdub later and fix my pitches and things like that? <laughs> or just let the bleed happen and that's just the way it's going to be? That just goes down to your confidence. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a song that you know you can just sing in your sleep and take chances and not just be worried about taking chances, but like you feel confident about it, then man, absolutely sing it live. <laughs> absolutely. You get so much better results. Singing live brings something extra out of you. There are a lot of songs that I've written that were a challenge for me vocally and, uh, and to really get them the way that I wanted them to be on a recording, I took the other approach on. And I think they're both completely valid choices. It just depends really on the vibe of the song and how confident you are about it. I'm always amazed when I get in a room with a singer who just sings takes with the band. I got to do a record with Cat Russell. I don't know if you know who Catherine Russell is. Nope. Oh man, backup singer to the stars and makes her own beautiful albums too. She sang with Bowie, she sang with Steely Dan, many, many huge acts over the years. And I got to do one of her records and she just set up with minimal isolation. She was in the room just behind a gobo. And that was just so that the drums wouldn't overwhelm her mic. But when she sang loud, she was definitely getting into my upright mic, for sure. She was bleeding into our mics as much as we were bleeding into hers. And man, she went for it, man. She took chances. She just like, I mean, she was singing. And every take we did, she just completely nailed it. And every one of them was different. And in the end, it had nothing to do with which one she sang better or worse or any of that. It just had to do with what was the hotter track. That to me was unbelievable. Like I felt like I was in the snake pit of Motown again, like in the old days, because that's what people had to do back then. And you know, if you had to have those chops, you developed them. And you don't really have to develop those chops anymore. That's a rarer and rarer talent. I mean, it was rare back then, but it's almost unheard of now. That was really, really something to, to get to witness in the flesh. You know, that's uh, <laughs> very, very hard to do and very amazing. Well, I guess it just depends on the style of music. I mean, we've got a whole national culture, you know, with American Idol and things like that of people who can recognize the differences between really amazing acrobatic singers and other really amazing acrobatic singers. Whereas if you bring chops like that into a basically folk outfit, then it's just, wow, like the standards are Bob Dylan. <laughs> so anything, right. you know, as long as you're original and authentic and you don't have to be acrobatic, you don't have to be on pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on the intention of the music, like where it's coming from, energetically, that kind of singing can sound really self-conscious. Yeah. And like you said, inauthentic, but in its proper context, it's awesome. When you hear a pop song, you want to hear those like unbelievable killer vocals that are just absolutely pristine and banging. And you definitely don't want to hear that in a singer songwriter who's slumped over their guitar. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. I would have to think about, I'm sure there are some Jeff Buckley's not that far from that, that basically has that same guy slumped over his guitar, but has that heavenly voice there. The thing about him is he had all those chops, but when it was time to emote over, when emotion had to eclipse his instrument, then you would never even hear the chops. He had such effortless use of his voice that whatever he felt, he just made happen. Like whether it was something acrobatic over here, or if it was just something absolutely genuine and felt, 
he's a really special talent, just a vast treasury of talent that guy had. It's unbelievable. Let's move before it gets too long here to Gone Today, going back to your Olabel days. This is from Riverside Battle Songs 2007. Yeah. So you said this is one, it's group credited, but that you brought forward, you're singing, everybody's singing, this is five-part harmony? Is that right? Yeah, there were five people singing. Yep. <laughs> you wouldn't think there'd be that many notes, but uh, we managed to do it. <laughs> yeah. So give us a little intro to the song, then we'll play it and talk more. At the time, I was obsessed with that old song, I'll Fly Away. And I just thought everything about that song was so cool. And I loved the idea of the ecstatic death, like being ecstatic to die. I was like, man, there's something so amazing about that. Like, it's just that single thought. And so I specifically wrote this to sound like an old song, like, but, but one of those songs that was just absolutely euphoric and that the euphoria absolutely overshadows, you know, any sadness about death or any of that. So this one I tracked playing Dobro and then put the upright on later. There was doubt as cold as winter. There was doubt as cold as winter. But it's gone today. There was darkness at my doorstep. There was darkness at my doorstep. But it's gone, gone, gone Yeah, I'd have to go back to fly away and listen to all the verses, whether there's any rationale given as to why it's so glorious to die. Here, it's just purely the emotional expression. It's not, I'm going to be with Jesus, and that's why it's, no, it's just put the idea out there. In I'll Fly Away, it's very much about, like, yeah, I'll see my folks again. And yeah, like, it's definitely very much a Christian song, essentially. I grew up Unitarian. They're existentialists. 
it's a very different approach to to spirituality or in, in Christianity. It's much closer to like Buddhism or something. <laughs> I wanted to write a song that got at the same thing, but wasn't so expressly Christian in this narrow way. It could just be a more expansive spiritual approach to the same idea. Now you've got me thinking about the inherent contradictions in a Buddhist spiritual <laughs> That transcending the cycle of rebirth would be something to be very emotional about, but being emotional would keep you from transcending the cycle of rebirth. So, If your emotion is compassion and bliss, then there you go. You're there. I guess, yes. <laughs> you're not going deep into your personal passions. Okay. Right. <laughs> Yeah, tell me more about the process of how you'd work with Olabel here. You know, you're just coming in with this. I brought in the song. We worked to arrange it together. Fiona McBain actually contributed a couple of my favorite parts to the lyric. It was a gallant band of, she gave the word gallant, which I thought was fantastic. And then also at the end of the last verse, it's all these tears you shed in sadness. And then she said, be them gone today. She really wrapped up the whole song perfectly lyrically there. So it's definitely like, the bulk of the song I brought in, but it became a collaboration and mostly with Fiona, with the lyrics. And then everybody threw in their two cents as to the way we arranged it, the entire sound of it, the instrumentation. When I first brought it in, I wasn't playing dobro. I was playing on like a, a G-tuned acoustic guitar. I was thinking of like a Gillian Welch kind of approach. It was nothing like what we came up with. The chords were there and the melodies were there, but the whole vibe and sound of the tune completely changed in the process. And that's the joy of working with a, with a great band of great musicians that inspire each other. If you can give yourself over and hand your little baby of a song over to the beat grinder, <laughs> you end up with something that you never could have conceived of yourself. It ends up always being better. I'm so into collaborations. I think it's always fantastic. The drums and bass don't come in until about a, a minute and a half in like when you're playing this slide, is somebody else just take the boom, 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 boom? Or are you moving from dobro to bass or doing some shift around at that point? You mean when we did it live? Either way, that was one of my questions is, are you recording these with Olabel in a mostly live setup? We recorded that live, but I overdubbed the upright. So I played the dobro and we tracked it. Gotcha. If I remember correctly, it's a live vocal on that too. I think I sang and played the dobro with the track on that song. And then, yeah, I went back and overdubbed the upright. The harmonies at the end sound a little more, not quite off the cuff, but not as choreographed. Whereas these very churchy harmonies early on, you know, are you sitting there actually writing out all the notes or is it, okay, let's have just you and Amy, you're doing something. And then we figure out where we can put another person on the top or the bottom or the middle. You know, what's the actual process here for you? With doing vocals with Olabel, I mean, that was so much of the fun because we had Amy and Fiona, just unbelievable singers, and who had done so much background work. Glenn, of course, great singer. Glenn has such a great ear for harmony and always full of ideas. And I'd been a background singer for, you know, rock bands and stuff, but this is my first time really singing a whole lot in this kind of context with Olabel. But the vocal arranging sessions were just idea after idea. And we're all such fans of each other's voices. And they're all so different that three of us together, like in different combinations, would have a totally different blend. And so we would use those different blends as production moves. Like there was a lot of time put into it. Every time we would build a vocal arrangement, it was just us sitting around singing the song and experimenting until it just all like came together. It's like that also was a group activity and some of the most fun I ever had. Let me call attention in particular to, it's about 44 seconds in, the way that the first Gone, Gone, Gone resolves here. But it's gone, gone, gone So I just heard a very, you know, it's almost like the amen. <laughs> The, yeah, yeah. The way that a couple of the high voices are settling down one step. We all love suspensions. We love harmony. The way you change a note and you, and you feel different, like it changes the mood slightly. You know, you could make something sweeter or you can make it a little, hurt a little bit more. Or when we were singing and probably I in the lead dropped that note in that hold first, just the way we ended up doing it later. And then I think Fiona hearing that, then heard the opportunity, because that's Fiona's voice that then drops down the second time, that, that upper note. I think she just heard me go down and then was like listening to the way that sounded. And then, and then she dropped in too. And I'm sure that we already had that worked out before we hit the studio. 
But of course, I don't think we had run it into the ground yet. So, uh, you know, it wasn't too clean or perfect. It sounded, and that's the way we wanted it to sound. We wanted it to sound like people on a porch singing together. I think we kind of got it. Would you notice, say, Glenn, you know, so a keyboard player, they're used to often playing these kind of chord clusters, you know, just wherever the fingers can go. So I would think that would be more likely to give rise to like, I'm going to just throw the ninth in there, you know, especially if you're, this is the fourth or fifth vocal or something that you could come up with these kind of more Manhattan transfer, almost like weird vocal chords, or it seems like mostly you avoided that kind of thing, that it is more in the realm of Bach or something, the harmonies rather than. Right. I'd say between Bach and the band, you know, I don't know how well, you know, I'm sure you know the band's music very well, but you know, Glenn was the master of what we called the Richard Manuel harmony, Ah. which is always like, if you think that singing the root on top is the right, he would always go for the nine instead. Like you're just like you said, or something that just like so surprising and always like whatever his choices were, they were always really surprising and so perfect and just gave suddenly now the song has the character and it becomes the thing that you look forward to when you get to the chorus. It's like, ah, that note, ah, Glenn and Fiona both had such a peculiar talent for, for finding those notes. Brilliant singers. I guess there's a difference between, okay, I'm going to sing the ninth on top, which just makes it a a nice spread chord. And you're already singing the third and the fifth. I'm going to sing the fourth just so we (laughs) have a solid wall of sound, which is actively distracting to the person next to you. That's tried, you know, I've tried to engineer that kind of harmony and like, no, it just people can't in a recording. Yes, it works fine, but in, in a live thing. Fairly difficult. But then on the other hand, you're actually dealing with lead quality vocalists across the board. Yeah. And luckily we all loved clusters and dissonance and all of that stuff. So when somebody would do that, rather than getting like distracted or like, you know, annoyed or sticking our finger in our ear so we could hold our note, it was always like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's great. Love the, the burn of the rub. We're going to sing a half step apart and we're going to hold it there. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. We did that all the time. We used to do that stuff in the van a lot. Actually, when we would be driving in the van, we would try to see just how dissonant we could get. And often, you know, like one of us would start singing a song and someone would come in a half step off. And like the singers were so good, like Fiona and Glenn could totally sing an entire song together, a cappella, a half step apart from each other the whole way through. No problem. (laughs) I got to say, I try to analyze groups of people who can't really hold a pitch. So you've got a group singing happy birthday. Yeah. And just kind of pay attention to what the people who aren't really singing and like what they're doing. And it actually can be harmonically interesting inadvertently, but like that's the range of my notes. I can only sing those three notes. And so I will do those throughout the song. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I love that stuff. I don't know if you've ever heard Steve Reich, different trains where he took people talking and he just like interviews with people. And then just things that they said, he figured out what notes they were singing and wove it into the music. And as they were talking, the music would change. It was just beautiful. I mean, the, the music, even just in just a speaking voice, can be so interesting. And I love when everybody sings happy birthday and it just sounds awful. Like, I hear so much music in that. It can be so beautiful. And is the Reich stuff, is that like 70s? Yeah, Steve Reich. Let me see. When did he do different trains? It might have been late 70s. Might have been 80s too, though. If you're doing that now, now that we have pitch correction and things. <laughs> I know, it's, it's less of a big deal now. I mean, it was quite a, an accomplishment back then. 88, later than I thought. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I'm trying to think of a good way to transition from that to Lost Leaders. <laughs> We're talking about all this borderline dissonant experimental stuff. Lost Leaders seems to be your... We're just doing rock. We're doing singer-songwriter and it's you and another singer-songwriter passing things back and forth. Do you want to sort of talk about how that project has interacted with the rest of the things you've been doing and why are you doing this solo album rather than another album with those guys or what's the relation here? Well, I actually am right now doing an album with Lost Leaders too. Peter Cole and I have been making music together since 1998. We've had various different bands. We've played jazz together. We've played power pop together. We've played what was basically alt country. Then we started Lost Leaders because we just wanted to have a rock band. And the thing is, Peter and I have just always had a really nice co-writing collaboration. I love writing with him. And we also just have a really cool, unusual vocal blend. And so, you know, no matter what else I had going on in my career and whatever he had going on too, 
we would always just make time to get together and, you know, make some music. And when we had enough songs to do a record, we'd make a record and whatever that sounded like, it would either we'd give it a new name, the band, you know, that we had at the time. For Lost Leaders, we've been doing it long enough now, it seems to, now we write specifically for Lost Leaders. It's really become kind of a, a focus putting out this solo album right now, basically because I have to get that out. It's, I've been feeling blocked in a certain way to have this album waiting and me just sort of trying to ignore it for all this time. I just, I had to put it out and it feels so good and I feel like musically reinvigorated. So of course I'm now I've, I just want to get back in the studio. And so we, we actually were just in the studio for a week with this great producer upstate named David Barron. We're working on our new Lost Leaders record. Hopefully it'll come out either late this year or early next year. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up by listening to Horizontal Man from the self-titled 2014 Lost Leaders album. Do you want to say just a few words specifically about that before we send you on your way? Well, this album was really fun because we, we recorded this album in Levon's barn. And we had actually recorded it while he was still living. And he would come down into, into the studio sometimes late at night, he'd come in in his bathrobe and say, sounds real good, boys. And uh, <laughs> I just have a lot of fond memories of him opening up his studio to us and, uh, and making that record in that sacred church to music, really, that is his barn, his, his house, where the midnight rambles have been happening for all these years. Lost Leaders got to have its little place in, in that pantheon. Yeah, it's fitting to end with Levon. We started with Levon. Do you want to say Olabel has Amy Helm, his daughter, in it? Yeah. Do you want to say just a little how that whole thing started? How did you get hooked up with Levon in the first place? Definitely through Amy. Glenn met Amy down in New Orleans. She was down there because her dad had opened up a club for a little while called Levon's American Roadhouse, I believe. And so she was down there with him while he was getting that going. And then she was just playing around with local artists. And she and Glenn met and hit it off and were making some music down there. And Glenn ended up moving up to the city and she came back up. And Glenn and I had a different band, sort of an art rock band, kind of like Mercury Rev or something. And uh, it was called Arvo. And we pulled Amy in to sing on some of that. And that was fantastic. And eventually when we coalesced into Olabel, it just had to be Amy. So we go into the studio to make the first Olabel record. And the second or third day we're in there, Levon pops by. And everybody in the band just started freaking out, except for me, because I had never really checked out the band's music. At that point, at 2002, I had just somehow, I'd missed that. I'd spent a lot of years like playing jazz. And there's these big swaths of music that I just missed. You know, like we were talking about earlier when you mentioned the Dan Fogelberg song named Gypsy Wind. I, I don't know about that. There's so much stuff. I'm so ignorant in so many ways of so much stuff. And so that's just one of the things I'd happen to miss. So we're playing and, and he ends up sitting in with us and he plays on two tracks on, on that first record of Ola Bells. That's the day that we all met him. Everyone's freaked out, except I, you know, I'm just like, wow, Amy's dad, is, he's got a great groove. And we're just like hitting it off, playing together. And his handler comes over to me, Butch Denner, this great, great fellow. And he comes over and he says, hey, uh, the boss wants your, uh, your information. I was like, oh, okay. You know any Willie Dixon tunes? I was like, uh, yeah. He's like, Here, here's some records to check out. <laughs> so I'm like, whoa, I wonder what that's about. It turns out that Levon wanted to get me for his own band at the time. And then Amy took him out back and said, you can't have our bass player. <laughs> so anyway, we leave the session. I'm just, yeah, you know, I thought, wow, man, now I have to check out the band. So I asked the guys like, okay, so what band records should I get? And they're like all trembling. And they're like, well, you, you, you have to get the, the first two that you got to get big pink and the Brown album. You know, they're all like, they're breathless. And so I get the Brown album is the first one I get. And I remember putting it on the stereo and it's one of those, only times in my adult life that I've had the same kind of musical epiphany that you have as a teenager when, of course, everything you hear, like, you know, just completely blows your mind. It was like that hair-raising experience. When Whispering Pines came on, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was just the most glorious otherworldly sound I'd ever heard. I mean, the whole record just knocked me flat. So the next time I saw Levon, I was starstruck. All right. That's a great way to end it. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate your time. Yeah, sure, man. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks so much to Byron. Great discussion. Very talented guy. If you enjoy this, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com for more. And come back for my next episode, which will feature Rat Scabies, drummer for the legendary punk band The Damned, who also has his debut solo album just this year. I hope you've been enjoying your September. I've been gearing up for a recording session myself coming up and consequently not recording many new episodes of this, but I've got a bunch in the can already, so I don't anticipate any break in service here. It will greatly increase the chance that these episodes will continue. If you can contribute, please visit patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to sign up for a small contribution. I welcome your feedback, as always, at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I want to encourage you, if you use Apple Podcasts or the iTunes Store or Stitcher to go, leave a nice rating and review for the podcast there to help people discover it. You can follow this podcast on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. And if you can share the episodes that you're excited about with your friends, that would also be of great help. Thanks so much for listening. Keep on music, and this is Mark Lentzenmeyer signing off.